And this evening we're going to look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, to Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. So if you just turn there, and we'll begin by reading the passage. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You held me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swelled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep waters surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is God's word. Well, this passage is a continuation of the story of Jonah that we've been looking at over the past number of weeks. Uh, and here we come to an interlude in the story uh, where Jonah prays. In chapter 1, verse 17, uh, we read that God had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated there as fish could be used for a host of sea creatures. Uh, it could have been a whale, as uh, many uh, traditions say that it was, but it doesn't have to be a whale. It could have been any kind of sea creature. But you don't have to go around and say, oh, it definitely wasn't a whale because a whale is a mammal. No, it doesn't really matter. He was swallowed by a great sea creature. And it's a miracle that is going on in this passage. It is not something that normally happens. You might read in various uh, books about people that have survived in the blubber of a whale. Uh, those things may or may not be true, I don't know. But the point is that this is a miracle. Humans do not normally survive if they get swallowed by a sea creature. This is a miracle. We don't need to try and prove that somehow people can survive in this kind of a way. It is an unusual event where God overrides the rules of nature that he himself has put in place. 
And we see that throughout this book, actually. God uh, sends or appoints a storm in chapter 1, a fish at the end of the chapter. Uh, Later on, he commands a plant to grow at an an unusual rate in in chapter 4. Nothing in this world operates outside the control of the sovereign God who created all of these things. And God as creator can, if he chooses, override the laws that he has put in place. And that is what is going on here. This is a miracle that delivers Jonah from certain death. And if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, and we believe in all of the miracles that we read of him doing in the Gospels, it is not too much of a stretch for us as Christians to believe, as we believe the Bible, that God can do this kind of a miracle. But there's a lot of focus on the miracle of this fish swallowing and delivering Jonah up. So much focus on this miracle that we sometimes miss a far greater miracle that is also going on in this passage. The miracle that Jonah is alive at all and that God delivers him even though he has been a disobedient prophet. It's a miracle that God saves Jonah at all considering the way that Jonah has behaved. The miracle of Jonah's deliverance from death is a far greater miracle even without the fish than the fish swallowing him. But it is interesting how Jonah is delivered. We read in verse 17 of chapter 1 that the Lord provided a huge fish. Now that word provided is sometimes translated as appointed or prepared and it speaks of God being in complete control over this particular sea creature, whatever it was. This creature was in the control of our sovereign Lord. And therefore, God is in complete control of the fish swallowing Jonah, and at the end of the passage, how the fish dispatches Jonah onto the dry land. So the fish swallows Jonah. Jonah then prays in the belly of the fish. And then after three days and three nights, we read this in verse 10 of chapter 2. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, the Lord could have commanded the fish to spit, to cough, for Jonah to walk out from the fish. I mean, it could have been any number of ways that God could have dispatched Jonah onto dry land. I mean, the narrative could say nothing at all and just say Jonah was put on dry land. But the writer here chooses to show us that God commanded the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. Now that word vomit is a horrible word, isn't it? I mean, nobody, I mean, maybe some people like vomit. There's hospital workers here. I don't know if you like vomit, but it's not a nice thing, is it? It's quite a disgusting, uh, nasty uh, word. But it's not the only place in the Bible where the word vomit is used. In fact, the book of Leviticus uses it perhaps the most. And in chapter 18 of Leviticus, it speaks of the defilement of sexual sin that the people of the land 
had fallen into before Israel had conquered it. And this is how God speaks of uh, this defilement of the land in Leviticus. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And it goes on, if you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Uh, later on in Leviticus, we read that it's, he, God says, keep all my decrees and laws and follow them, so that the land I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. The disgusting defilement of sin causes God to make the land vomit the people out. The punishment for sin and the sign of how God feels about the behavior of his people is summed up in how they are get dispatched from the land. They are vomited out of the land. That's how God feels about them. In the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaks to a church in Laodicea, and he says that their deeds, the, the things that they do, are neither hot nor cold. They're, they are lukewarm. And they are, that means they are not passionate about Jesus. They're not, they, don't really, they don't really care. They don't, they're not passionate about him or anything spiritual. And so in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16, this is what we read. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now that word spit in the authorized versions translated as spew. I will spew you out of my mouth. And literally it means to vomit. The attitude of this church makes God want to vomit. Whenever it's that, that word vomit is used in the Bible, it is used in a way of how we feel about the word. Something disgusting, something horrible. It makes us sick. And so when we come back to Jonah, he is swallowed by a great fish under the control of God. He prays in the belly of the fish, and then God causes the fish to vomit. And so in light of how that word is used throughout Scripture, we can legitimately ask this question of this passage. What makes the Lord vomit? Why is God causing the fish to vomit Jonah out of its belly onto the land? Well, at the end of uh, chapter 1, in verse 16, the reader of this story, if you're reading it for the first time, and certainly the sailors who have just thrown Jonah overboard, think that he's dead. The natural thing to assume was that Jonah was going to die. But in the very next verse, in verse 17, the Lord provides the fish in order to save Jonah. Now, sometimes we may think of the fish as a punishment for Jonah. Jonah was very bad, and so God put him in the belly of a fish to punish him. But that's not the case here. The fish is the deliverance for Jonah. Jonah was very bad. Jonah deserved to drown in the sea, and God provided a fish to save him from drowning and deliver him onto dry land. Well, when Jonah was in the fish, in verse 1 of chapter 2, 
we read that Jonah prays. Now, the prayer that he gives here is a, a typical prayer of thanksgiving. And it uses uh, phrases and, and, uh, and words that come right from the language of the Psalms. He is speaking the word of God that he knows well. He's talking in Psalm language. He's been delivered from a watery grave, and he is praying a psalm of thanksgiving, giving thanks to God for delivering him from certain death. But there's something about this prayer, something in this prayer of thanksgiving that causes the Lord to command the fish to vomit. What is it? Because much in this prayer is commendable if we read the words on their own. But in the context of the whole book of Jonah and Jonah's attitude, especially at the end, we see that this prayer isn't quite perhaps all that at first it seems. And there are two aspects to this prayer that causes the Lord to vomit. And the first is this. Speaking of God's goodness, but no confession of sin. In verse 2, we read the start of Jonah's prayer, and, and he is distressed. Now, it might seem strange that he is distressed if we've read chapter 1, because if you remember, Jonah asked to be thrown into the sea. He asked to die, and in fact, he would have felt that dying was better than going to Nineveh. So why is Jonah distressed? Well, it seems that as one thing to, to want to die and to want to be thrown into the sea, but the actual experience of drowning is something quite different altogether, isn't it? As he begins to drown, that experience which is described in this prayer as a horrific experience causes him to be in distress. It's one thing to say, throw me overboard, and you feel that's what you want to do, but when you can't breathe, the emotions and experiences can be rather different. And so in his distress... As he fears he's going to die, Jonah cries out to the Lord. A prayer for help in desperate times. The God that he has ignored is now being called upon in this emergency. And God could have ignored Jonah. God could have said, well, you've, you've walked away from me. You deserve to die, which would be true. But Jonah says in verse 2, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And he answered me with this fish, which was the deliverance from death. The second half of verse 2 parallels the first, reinforcing what Jonah is saying. When he says that he's in the realm of the dead, he's talking about the sea. He was dying. And in, his, in the realm of the dead, as he was about to die, as he was right there at the very edge of life, God listens to his cry. He's acknowledging that he's been delivered. He's thankful that God has saved him from this certain death. Well, then in verses 3 and 4, Jonah moves on from acknowledging God's deliverance of him to explaining, in his mind, how he ended up in the sea. And look how he describes this in verse 3. You, that is, God hurled me into the depths, into the very heart 
of the sea. Isn't it interesting that he says to God, you hurled me into the sea. But if we just read again chapter 1, you'll notice that Jonah asks the sailors to throw him into the sea. Repentance for Jonah in the boat would have been, let's go back to Joppa. I need to go to Nineveh and preach. But Jonah asked the sailors to throw him into the sea. So he doesn't have to go to Nineveh. But Jonah here is blaming God. You, God, held me into the sea. And then look at verse 4. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Well, that's interesting because in chapter 1, Jonah wasn't banished from God's sight. Rather, Jonah, what did he do? He runs away from the presence of the Lord. He doesn't want to be in God's sight. He runs. Now, there is an acknowledgement here, which is right, in a sense, and good, that God is in sovereign control. There is a sense that as God is the sovereign king over all things, that he does throw Jonah into the sea and banish Jonah from his presence. There is a sense that that is true because God is in control of everything. But there is no acknowledgement here of or personal responsibility from Jonah regarding his sin. It is all, you God threw me into the sea, you God banished me from your presence. But there is no, Lord, I asked to be thrown into the sea because I didn't want to go to Nineveh. And there is no, I was away from your presence because I ran. You see? He's blaming God. But if I run from God, if I choose to follow a path of sin, and then there are consequences to my sin, there is a sense where I can say to God, God has chastised me. But that's not all that the problem is, is it? I need to come to God and say, God, I have sinned. I have messed this up, and I'm suffering the consequences of my sin. Jonah doesn't confess his sin. He talks about his problems being because God is in control, because God is sovereign. But at the end of verse 4, although Jonah is banished from God's sight, he thinks he's okay because he looks again towards God's holy temple. Now, the temple in the Old Testament was the place of salvation. It was the place where God dwelt. It was the place of sacrifice, where atonement was made for sin. It is the place to look to and to go to to find deliverance. But it was also the place where Jonah ran from when he wanted to escape the presence of the Lord. He claims to look again as if, I always look there, Lord. And he believes that when he looks again, he'll be back in God's favor. And there is an element where this is true. For us as New Testament people, we don't look to a temple in Jerusalem. We look to a Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom God dwelled in all of his fullness. We look to Jesus to be saved, and that's true. Of course we look to Jesus to be saved. But we look there 
because we recognize our sin and how it offends a holy God and we confess our sin and trust that the the God who paid the price for that sin by dying on the cross is what we need to save us from that sin. But what Jonah is doing here is rather he's not looking to God because he sinned, but rather he's relying on himself, looking at the temple, his own action, rather than acknowledging that he needs to look there because he has sinned. There's a, a slight difference, you see. He's not looking there because, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need atonement. I need God's help. He's looking there because, well, that's the thing that I should do. I need to just look to the temple. It's, and he's relying on his own efforts, his own work in looking there, and he believes that what makes him okay with God. Well, verses 5 to 7 are parallels of verses uh, 3 and 4. Uh, this, is, this is poetry in this part as he's praying. It's uh, for, uh, like the Psalms. And verses 5, uh, uh, 6, and 7 parallel those verses that precede it. In verse 5, again, there's another description of drowning. It's even worse than before in, in the way that we read it because it even talks here of the, of the seaweed being wrapped around his head. You can, it's like he's being throttled by this seaweed as he drowns. It's dragging him under. He can't escape. And in verse 6, at the beginning there, he sinks down to the roots of the mountains, it says. That's to the, the lowest part of the sea. And it's the end of a ja- downward journey that Jonah has been on as he's walked away from God. In chapter 1, he goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the bows of the boat. And here he's down into the very depths of the sea. And the, the, the walk away from God, the running away from God, is a downward journey that, if we do not repent, ends up in the lowest part, which is hell. He's running from God and here his journey ends in the lowest part of the sea it's as low as he can get and he describes being imprisoned there in verse 6 the earth beneath barred me in forever it's like he's reached the very bottom of the sea so it's like the earth and it's barred him in he can't escape but he does escape why well there at the end of verse 6 you lord brought my life up from the pit god saved him The downward journey ended, God lifted him up. Well, why did God do that? Why why is it that God saved Jonah from drowning? Well, in verse 7, Jonah believes it was because of what he did. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Jonah believes that because he remembered the Lord and prayed, he was delivered. And again, we need to remember the Lord. We need to remember he is a God of mercy. We need to remember he has died to pay for our sin. We need to pray to him. Of course, those things are true, but there is no mention here of God's mercy. There's no mention here that he deserved to be left at the bottom of the sea and to be barred into Uh, into the earth that was barring him in. There's only mention here of what he did. But we remember the Lord and the, the greatness and goodness of the Lord and we pray to the Lord because 
we are sinners in need of a savior. There's no acknowledgement here that Jonah uh, doesn't deserve this deliverance because of his sin. He thinks he deserves it because of what he has done. And notice here uh, as well, Jonah, he remembers God and he prays, but when does he do that? He does that when there's an emergency. Everyone uh, probably who's got seaweed wrapped around their neck at the bottom of the ocean is going to try to pray. I was reading recently about D-Day and General Eisenhower uh, said how there were no atheists on the boats going over to those beaches. Everyone believed in God then. Most people remember God when they're drowning. There was no remembering God and praying when God said, let's go to Nineveh, go preach to them. It makes the Lord vomit when we talk about his goodness and his deliverance and he's a a wonderful savior but we are blind to our sin and the reason that we need deliverance how easy it is to talk a good game about God's goodness and live as if we don't even need it never apologizing to God or to anybody else for things that we've done wrong never thinking that we've made a mistake Blaming others for things that go wrong in our lives that really are our own fault. How easy it is to talk of how God is a sovereign God and in control of everything and use that as an excuse for our own sin and say, well, it was all part of God's plan, so it doesn't really matter. Taking no responsibility for it at all. Those kind of things make the Lord vomit. It is right that we give thanks for God's mercy for us. We should be doing that all the time. But it's, it, we, we only have God's mercy because we've not got the judgment we deserve. We need to confess that we are sinners in need of God's forgiveness. And as we pray, in our prayers, we need to spend time confessing sin to God. Now, Jonah knew the Psalms well. He pulls language from the Psalms. But perhaps he should have read some more of David's confession in Psalm 51. David said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right, when you're, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David said, you know, Lord... I have sinned and I have sinned against you and you alone. And if you you were to, to wipe me off the face of the earth, you would be absolutely right to do so. When was the last time that you prayed and spent time praying in confession of sin? When was the last time that you or I said sorry to somebody else for doing wrong? Because it's far easier just to either pretend it hasn't happened and just ignore it, or just to think that we're right anyway. But the sin that defiles and the sin that is sickening is actually what God wants to forgive if we would confess it to him. Well, the prayer changes emphasis after verse 7. 
after Jonah so far has been mainly talking about himself, I mean, if you were to go through the psalm, uh, notice how many times he uses the, the, word, the, the pronoun I. He's talked of mainly himself so far. He now begins to talk about others. But as he sort of speaks of others in verses 8 and 9, he does so in a sickening way. The next aspect to this prayer is this, pointing out sin when we are self-righteous. Look at verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. It's interesting that Jonah wants to make this known. And the statement on its own is absolutely true. You could print this statement off. You could frame it and uh, put it up on your wall in your house. And it would be a lovely uh, verse from the Bible, wouldn't it? Because it's true. If we cling to, to worthless idols, we do turn away from God's love for us. It's only when we worship God that we live in the light of the love that he has for us and, and we're blessed. It's only as we give up our idols and we follow the Lord Jesus that we receive the blessing of God upon our lives. But the truth of verse 8 is not in question. The question is, well, who are those that Jonah has in mind? Who are the, the those who cling to worthless idols? Well, in the light of this account of Jonah, those must be the sailors who prayed to their gods earlier in chapter 1 and the Ninevites whom he has been sent to who worship idols. He's talking about people who are not like him. Pagans. People who worship other gods. What he hadn't seen, which we, the reader, have, is that those sailors whom he accuses here of forfeiting God's love for them are the ones that did confess their sin and worship God at the end of chapter 1. So Jonah here is pointing out the sin of others, those, whoever, who cling to worthless idols, well, they forfeit God's love for them. That's what he's doing here. Sounds a lot like the, tax collect uh, the, the Pharisee, doesn't it? I'm glad I'm not like those sinners over there. So Jonah points out the sin of others, but look in verse 9 how he turns to himself. But I, and in this verse we see that pronoun I four times because it's all about him. He thinks he's totally different from those in verse 8. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Well, he promises here to do in the future what the sailors have already been doing, sacrifice and vow. Now remember what those things are. A sacrifice is a public expression of dependence and worship. And a vow is a public expression of intent to continue to follow, to continue to worship and to, to depend on God. And so Jonah, so sacrificing is worshipping now. I'm going to give myself in sacrifice to God. And vowing is committing to worshipping in the future. And we said when we looked at the sailors doing this that that's the posture of the Christian life. It's a, a continual sacrifice 
and vow. Each day we wake up and say, Lord, I'm going to sacrifice in following you today. Your will be done, Lord. And I want to do the same tomorrow. We wake up each day as God's people. That should be our posture. But Jonah here is saying, well, I will do that in the future. He's got good intentions of showing God how different he is from those were idol worshippers that were on the boat and that are in Nineveh. Very, very similar to the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jonah is the Pharisee who thinks he's better than those tax collectors over there, but it's the wicked sailors, and we'll see the wicked Ninevites, who, like the tax collectors, are justified. And Jonah, we will see, ends up bitter. It makes the Lord vomit when we point out the sin in others while thinking that we are better than them. Now it is right to point out sin. But Jesus gives us the way to do this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We have to begin with our own sin. And when we confess our own sin and are fighting our own sin with God's help, and acknowledging that in humility, we are then ready to go and help others with theirs. But true repentance begins with, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's so easy to point out the sin in others and to ignore our own, but we're better off focusing on and fighting our own sin Better off focusing on sacrifice and vow in our own lives, not just good intentions of living for God in the future. It's an awful thing when we come to a place where we're saying to God, I'll serve you tomorrow, Lord, whilst at the same time looking around and saying, how awful are these Christians? The church is in a terrible place, isn't it? Look at all the, well, what's going wrong. Look at that person over there. Now, Jonah is right when he says at the end of verse 9, salvation comes from the Lord. Of course, salvation comes from the Lord. Ironically, we see that true throughout this book in ways that Jonah just cannot accept. We'll see later on how he has to learn this lesson that he has proclaimed the hard way, when he doesn't agree with how the salvation comes from the Lord, who it goes to. Jonah acknowledges this truth, but we'll see how he really feels about it later on. But how God feels about Jonah is shown in verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah's prayer makes God vomit. And yet, God still delivered him, doesn't he? What Jonah didn't realize was that he did not deserve this mercy any more than the pagans that he was in the boat with 
and that he's going to when he goes to Nineveh. But amazingly, and this is the greater miracle than the fish, God was even going to use Jonah, even after this sickening prayer, to accomplish his will and bring salvation to those who need to hear it. Hundreds of years later, the Lord Jesus refers back to Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. Jesus is speaking with religious leaders who have the same sick attitude that Jonah has. We read this in Matthew 12. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah was this deliverance from death. Jonah was delivered from death after three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. He was delivered from death even though his, his whole attitude and his prayer makes God vomit. But Jonah deserved far worse than he got here. He deserved to die. Jesus Christ, he did not deserve his death. And his death on the cross was far, far worse than anything Jonah suffered. And when Jesus bore our sin, he himself recognized that he was so repulsive to God in bearing our sin that Jesus really was banished from God's sight. He was forsaken by his Father. But as Jesus was on the cross, suffering for not his own but our sin, his prayers were very different to Jonah's prayers. When Jesus was on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. He looked to care for his mother that was going to be suffering because her son was dying. He was looking out for the needs of others ahead of himself. The way that Jonah was delivered, though, showed that God was sick of him. But Jesus' deliverance from death was far different, wasn't it? The deliverance from the grave that was the sign of Jonah showed that Jesus was pleasing to his father. Jesus' deliverance from death, from the grave, showed that the sacrifice that he made was sufficient to pay for sin. And Jesus wasn't vomited out of the grave, was he? No. Jesus rose victorious from the grave. And it was the resurrection that was the sign that showed that Jesus is the Son of God who can save us from our sins. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, and he rose victorious from the grave so that we know that when we trust him to forgive our sin, we can have eternal life with him. He is pleasing to God. And his whole attitude as he suffered in the realm of the dead was so different to, to Jonah's 
And the deliverance that he went through as he came out of the grave was far greater even than Jonah's. It shows us that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we see what Christ has done for us in dying for our sins and in rising from the dead, what should our response be? Our response should be to thank God that he has delivered us from a death that we deserve and we can pray based on that sacrifice, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We need to stop looking at everyone else and how bad they are and realize that we need that sacrifice as much more than anyone else. Well, we're going to respond uh, in song, but also uh, at the Lord's table, a great place where we can go to be reminded of our need of God's mercy and where it's provided. Isn't it lovely we can come around the bread and the cup and remember what Jesus has done for us? But we're going to respond, first of all, in song. We have two songs. First of all, we're going to, uh, going to sing of the resurrection of Jesus, how he rose victorious from death. He wasn't vomited out of the grave. He rose victorious. And then before we come to the Lord's table, we're going to sing a song of confession 